You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're just going to look at um, a, quite a few verses. It's a pretty hefty chapter, uh, 52 verses or so. But it drives to a very important point, I think, for us and, and for the early church, certainly. And uh, I, I don't want to miss what God would say. And so we won't go line by line. We might be here for hours. But I do want to read it, uh, take it section by section. Um, it's broken up uh, pretty well for us. And then um, see what God would have to say to us uh, today, just like he did thousands of years ago uh, for the early church. And so why don't we pray, um, and then we'll read and get into it. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you now. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this time, the space, the technology that we have to study it together. Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would speak to us, or that you would show us things in our hearts that uh, that might need to change, Lord, uh, by your molding and shaping, God. And I pray that we would be surrendered uh, to your will on our lives today, and that we, we would be made more and more like your son, Jesus, Lord, through the power of your word. And so we thank you for what you're doing. Uh, be uh, with us today, Lord. I pray that you are blessed by our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, just to give some context to Acts chapter 7, the early church is growing uh, quite rapidly, actually. Uh, God is adding daily uh, to the church those souls that are saved. We, we know that from, uh, from history. And so the church is growing exponentially. The Holy Spirit is moving through the apostles and working through these men called apostles. People are getting healed. Demons are being cast out. Miracles are happening. Eyes are being opened uh, to the, the kingdom that Jesus announced, that Jesus proclaimed the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and, and people are, are, are coming aware of, of what this is all about, this alternative way to live, this new kingdom where Jesus is king of the world. And it's not a political kingdom, it wasn't a geographic kingdom, it was a spiritual kingdom that, uh, it, it, that was invading our world and it informs how we love our neighbors and our enemies. And so that's what these apostles were doing. They were proclaiming this kingdom and people were loving it, people were hearing it, people were receiving it, but they were indeed making some enemies, these apostles and leaders of the early church. Um, they, the, the Pharisees and the Jewish and the religious leaders of the day uh, were not having it so much. They weren't excited about this way of Jesus. And these people were uh, arrested on several occasions, brought before different leaders and organizations, put on trial and all of this, and they, they never wavered in their faith. They were attacked from the outside, from the jealousy and the envy of these religious and political leaders. They were attacked from the inside of hypocrisy and false teaching and not understanding what was going on and what it meant to be a part of the church. And by all accounts, the church should have been destroyed. The church should not have been able to grow like it did unless their faith was in a powerful God and a true God. And that's exactly what it was. In fact, that's what the priest uh, Gamaliel, or the Pharisee Gamaliel, uh, in Acts chapter 5, he said uh, about these apostles and about the way of Jesus at one of these trials when they were brought before him. He looks to his fellow Pharisees and he says, guys, we, we've had people come up. We've had different factions and, and different uh, messiahs, you know, announce themselves as the messiah. And it all they all just die out. They, they die in battle. They die on the their own. They fizzle out. The movements don't go anywhere. If this is just another one of those movements, it's going to die out on its own. But if this really is a work of God, he says, you cannot overthrow it in Acts 5, 39. And that's exactly what's happening. The church is growing. Leaders are being raised up. And we meet a man named Stephen. 
And he's a, a leader here in the early church. The apostles bring him in and his basically his day-to-day was going to the temple and uh, talking with the Jews about their scriptures and how they pointed to Jesus as their Messiah. He would debate the Old Testament texts and, and show that, that Jesus was the one that was promised to them so long ago. And it turns out, though, that they couldn't handle this truth. They couldn't handle the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they plot to kill Stephen. They arrest him. They bring him before uh, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the scribes, this council, And their accusation against him was twofold, basically that, well, Stephen was opposing the work of God. He was was opposing what he was saying was was antithetical to everything that God had set up throughout history to to worship him, to sacrifice to him, to worship in the temple. Stephen, and well, Jesus, but Stephen comes and says, uh, it's all wrong. You're doing it all wrong. He, He quotes two things. Number one, that the first accusation was that, uh, quoting from Jesus, that Jesus would destroy the temple, that this, this beautiful building that they, had, that they had come to call their own, that it was the place of their worship where God's presence dwelled, uh, Stephen says that it's going to be destroyed. Actually, Jesus said it. If you were with us last week, actually, from John chapter 2, Jesus tells the Pharisees that I will destroy the temple and then in three days I'll raise it up again which was impossible, of course, this giant, massive building. But Jesus was talking about his body, and they understood it after he was raised from the dead. And Stephen is saying, yeah, remember when Jesus said that the temple will be destroyed, but this was blasphemous to the Pharisees. They didn't understand, and naturally they took offense to Stephen saying that their beautiful temple was going to be torn down. And Secondly, Stephen was talking about changes to the ways that Moses had set up long ago, the laws, the precepts, the traditions, the the customs that that the Hebrew faith uh, called for and the way that they worshiped and sacrificed to God. Stephen said that, hey, if Jesus is uh, if Jesus really was crucified, and if he and if he really did die, and if he really is raised again, and if he really did ascend and is seated at the right hand of God, then all the laws, the customs, everything from Moses, the old covenant, were done away with. They were fulfilled in Jesus because this new covenant had been made, as Jesus said. And so those two things were being threatened by Stephen: the idealization of God's presence dwelling in the temple and the temple alone, and then secondly, that the constant work of the Jews and and what they were doing and following the minute details of all the laws, and it was a lot of work, that it was done away with, it wasn't needed anymore. And so those two things were an offense to the Pharisees. They bring Stephen before the council, and in verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, are these things so? Is this really what you're talking about? Is this really what you're saying? And Stephen here gives his defense. And strangely, he tells a story. He could have appealed to all the miracles that were happening. He could have appealed to the work of Jesus. He could have appealed to the empty tomb. Say, hey, look, obviously, Jesus is the Messiah. He could have appealed to the work of the Holy Spirit, what was going on around them in Jerusalem. He could have done all these things, but he gives a condensed history of Israel. He goes through their story, through Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and he concludes at the end of his speech by turning the tables on his accusers and saying actually that they were the ones to oppose the work of God. It wasn't Stephen, it wasn't Jesus. The Pharisees are actually the ones opposing the work of God. And two things about Acts 7 and this sermon or the speech of Stephen. 
Number one, how and where God shows mercy and forgiveness and love to his people. And number two, however, that God is also just. His patience um, towards resisting him only goes so long. And these are the two things that I want to see. This is exactly what Stephen is doing, how God is both merciful and just, and then what our response to him ought to be. And so Stephen starts with the story of Abraham and how God calls him in verse 2. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land, which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And so this is the beginning of the history of, of the nation of Israel, God calling uh, Abraham and his family to be the blessing to the nation that he promised so many years before. This is how he was going to save the world, save creation from sin. And Abraham is chosen. And he quotes from the Old Testament scriptures. Stephen's accusers would have known these texts. They knew these stories. This was not new information for them. In fact, they would have known them inside and out. But the problem, Stephen being spirit-filled, the problem with the Pharisees is that as they were reading, the way that they were reading these texts and interpreting the Old Testament scriptures, interpreting what God was doing, they were, they were blind to God, how God was actually going to work this out, how God was actually going to rescue the world. They couldn't see past the me-centered worldview that they were caught up in, the pride and the self-centeredness. And they couldn't see past that and see what God was actually going to do. And so Stephen, being spirit-filled, points out to them and to us now, through his sermon, God's initiative, God's action, God's divine action onto humanity, God's divine work in history and how he is going to do the work how he is going to accomplish his will through human agency. And so we meet Abraham, who God calls to himself, the, the father, the, the patriarch of the Hebrew faith. And notice where Abraham is when God calls him. Is he in the temple, which the Pharisees held in such high regard? Was he in Jerusalem? Was he in the right spot? No, he was in Mesopotamia. Actually, Joshua chapter 24 in the Old Testament recounts for us a little bit more detail about Abraham's time before God called him. Joshua 24 says that Abraham and his family were living, quote, on the other side of the river, which is just a euphemism for not in Israel. Abraham was not in Israel, and they were, quote, serving other gods in Joshua chapter 24. And this is important because the accusation against Stephen was that God only speaks and dwells in his temple. God is here. This is what he has set up. This is what he has done. We can understand it. We know it. This is how God works. And so what, uh, what Jesus is saying, what Stephen is saying, that God speaks to and dwells in his people, 
was blasphemous to the Pharisees. But Stephen uses their own scriptures. He says, you should know better. The, the very beginning of the story is God stepping out of what we think we know and calling Abraham out from serving other gods living on the other side of the river, and God is doing the work. You should know better. He points out that God is merciful, that he comes to Abraham, that he speaks to him, and Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And this truth runs through all of Scripture, from beginning to the end, that we believe the lie that we can get ourselves to God. We believe that we can bring ourselves in some sort of holiness or perfection or purity so that God will accept us, so that God will love us, or that we know better than God even, but we can't do it. God, we need God to, to intervene, to step into our story, to step into history and do the work, and he comes to us. It was true of Abraham at the very beginning of Scripture. It was true of the Jewish leaders in Stephen's day, of course, with Jesus coming to them, and it's true of us today. Emmanuel, that God is with us, that God loves us. And this truth is hard to swallow <laughs> because even when we are faithless, God is faithful. Even when we are serving other gods, even when we're living on the other side of the river, God is faithful to us. It is God that does the work. It is always God that does the work. And there's the beginning of God's rescue mission for creation, that he's merciful as he steps into and works within broken humanity. He makes a covenant with Abraham, says, I'm going to do this. That's what the covenant of, of circumcision was. I've made this promise. Here we go. I'm going to make this happen. You don't have any children yet, but I'm going to bring your descendants, and, and this is how this is going to play out. It's going to be awesome, and I will begin the work. Stephen's laying the groundwork for his argument, and then he moves to Joseph, and Joseph is shown favor. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. And so Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And so Joseph is sold, but God was with him. And did you notice where God was with him? Stephen recounts it six times in seven verses. Egypt, 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 not the temple, not Jerusalem, because God's presence is not defined by a place or a building or a city. No, God comes to him in Egypt. And did you see how Stephen is, is showing these religious leaders how their, their, their view of, of God's presence and their view of how, God's work, of how God works is, is incorrect, it's wrong. And did you notice how God was with Joseph? In verse 10, he delivered him out of his troubles. He gave him favor. He gave him wisdom. This is God's doing. This is God's working in Joseph's life. And through God's giving of that wisdom, through God's giving of that favor to Joseph, those who were opposed to God's plan, those who were opposed to God's working, were actually saved in the end. And who were those that were opposed to God's plan? It was the patriarchs. 
these people that the Jewish Pharisees would have held in such high regard, who they would have looked up to, our, our fathers, our patriarchs of the Hebrew faith. It's Stephen calls them our fathers, this term of respect. But they, in their envy and jealousy of Joseph, left him for dead, came back, then sold him as slavery to the Egyptians, then went back to their father and lied about it, told their father that Joseph was killed. This is like a solid, upstanding group of guys, right? The patriarchs of the Hebrew faith. This is who they look up to and respect. And so what does God do about them? He could have said, just wrote, wrote them off. Okay, these 11, they're, they're not getting it. They're opposed to my work. It's not going to work out. I'll stick with Joseph. He gets it. I'll give him favor and wisdom. We'll start a new family in Egypt. It's going to be awesome, and that's how I'll do my plan. No, God saves them. God delivers them in spite of their evil through his working in Joseph's life, through all of their sin and jealousy and hatred and lying about killing their brother. God provides a way to show he is merciful. Because God does the work. It is always God that does the work. Are you seeing a pattern here? Stephen moves on to Moses. This is a larger chunk of the chapter, but we'll pick it up in, in verse 23. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, it came uh, into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. He was living in Pharaoh's house at the time. He came to his brethren, uh, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong at the hand of the Egyptian, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller, or the word can be translated in exile, in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then here's a key verse in this passage. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown them wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses, who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And who was that prophet that God would raise up? Jesus, of course. Him you shall hear. Moses is foreshadowing the work of Jesus, how from their brethren they would, a deliverer would come of their own people and lead them out of the bondage of sin. And this is what Moses does. He leads the people of Israel out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt. But again, Stephen calls out the Hebrew people and how they missed what God was doing. Did you catch that in verse 25? For Moses supposed that they would, they would have understood 
that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Again, in verse 27, he pushed them away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? They did not get what God was doing. They did not see how God could work this out. The very people of God didn't even understand the blessings of their God. And so what does God do? He could forget the people. Okay, they're slaves in Egypt. They're not understanding. They're not getting it. I'll start with Moses. I'll bring Moses out. I'll start a new family, make a new covenant. We'll start all over. That will be my plan. Moses gets it. Moses is on the right side, the right wavelength. He and I are on the same page. Let's do this, Moses. But he doesn't. No, he meets Moses and he offers deliverance to his people. In verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Where is, God when, where, where is Moses when God speaks? Was he in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the promised land, sacrificing the way he's always supposed to do? No, he's in the wilderness, in exile, in Midian, and God comes to him. But this is holy ground because this is where God's presence is. And the Pharisees are missing it. They're so focused on the temple. And then God reminds Moses of his divine initiative. Again, this action on history and what he is going to do. He says, my people, I have heard them. I have seen them. I will deliver them. I will send you. And then, of course, God did bring them out, delivering them out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, brought them out of slavery. He delivered them. God did the work. It is always God that does the work. Through their stubbornness, through their misunderstanding, they were brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of oppression. They're going to start their new nation, and they're still not submitting to God. Verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but they rejected, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They still couldn't get over it. They still couldn't see what God was doing for them. They turned back to Egypt. Who turned back? Our fathers, the people of Israel. This is the, the theme through the history of, of the nation of Israel, that they turned back to Egypt. Stephen is pounding this point home. The people of God are sinners and stiff-necked and stubborn, but it's always God that does the work. And Stephen now is going to kind of turn the page here and, and kind of start to to get to the final point, the final thrust of his speech, of his sermon. In verse 41, the fathers want to turn back to, to Egypt, and they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol. And here's the phrase, I think this is the, the main key thing in the entire speech. And they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. They rejoiced in the work of their own hands. This entire history, the entire speech that Stephen is saying as his defense for the council is how God works and accomplishes his will, how God does the work, how God is always there, how God doesn't leave, how God never forsakes, how God always delivers, how God always saves how God is your God who loves you, who shows you mercy and faithfulness and, and forgiveness, how God is always doing the work. And here they are rejoicing in the work of their hands, their own feeble work, worshiping their own little golden statue there in the wilderness. 
This is the people of Israel. And so, in verse 42, then God turned. God's patience runs out for those that reject him, for those that resist him for so long, those that were opposed to his plan, to his working, those that are opposed to his rescue mission of creation. Let them have their idol worship. In verse 43, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." This is the consequence of their sin. This is God in his mercy saying, okay, if this is what you want, you want to be opposed to me and my work, if you can't see what I'm doing throughout history, then have at it. Worship your own gods. And yet God still doesn't give up. Look at verse 45. Stephen's talking about the tabernacle, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. In his mercy, God still brings a stiff-necked and stubborn people into the promised land, and God drives out the Gentiles. Why? Because God does the work. It is always God that does the work. And finally, Stephen comes to the height of his story, the climax here, verse 46. David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house, this temple. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And then he proves it. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? Solomon builds God a house, and verse 48 was the key. It was made with hands. And this, this is the crux of Stephen's argument. This is the answer to the question that he's been asking. What is it that made the Jewish people so stiff-necked and so stubborn? What was the root of their pride? What was it about Jesus of Nazareth that they found so offensive? What was it about this lowly carpenter turned rabbi, turned teacher, miracle worker that they hated so much? What was it that they could not see, that they could not bring themselves to understand? Well, I think verse 41 and verse 48 are the keys. They rejoiced in the work of their own hands, but then we see that God does not dwell in a building built with hands. And these two things that they, that they, could, not, that they could not bring themselves to see. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the fundamental problem that all humanity is guilty of is we find our fulfillment, our joy, our meaning, our worth, and our significance in what we can make with our hands. Pharisees were no different. A lot of times we are no different. We get so caught up in what we can see and what we can make and what we can understand with our hands that this is what we place all of our focus onto. In other words, they and we oftentimes want a God that we can fit and fashion with our hands. We want a God that's going to serve our comforts, that's going to serve our needs, that's going to serve our wants, that we can that we can measure, that we can see, that we can understand, that we can wrap our minds around, a God that we can work towards, that we can, that we can do things for based on our merit and our skill and our strength. And the problem is that they were not about to give up their pride and their status and their comfort to Jesus 
the Son of God. They were so steeped in their tradition. They were so steeped in their customs that they would not bow to that God who continually, over and over and over again, proves himself to be loving, faithful, and merciful to them. They just could not see it. And this is the gospel of Jesus. This is why he came, and this is what they found so offensive when he said, I will destroy this temple. What he means is that I will destroy this religious system of work and pride. I will destroy these things that you've, that you've been so caught up in, thinking that you can build yourself to God or that you can pave your own way to heaven. I will destroy this religious system of work and pride, and I'm going to make a new way to live with God. This is what Jesus says, but it's not going to be based on geographic location. It's not going to be based on, on what you do or how you worship or what you wear or what you look like. It's not going to be based on a temple, on a building, on, on, on how you worship, on the tradition or the work of your hands, Jesus says. It's going to be based on him dying on a Roman cross, demonstrating a love that is unmatched throughout history. And in so doing, he offers a radical freedom from the bondage, from the stronghold of having to, of, of, of having to, to follow these rules of a works-based religion, of a works-based system. And so I am no longer forced to wonder if I'm doing enough. I'm no longer forced to wonder if I'm good enough, if I've done the right thing, if I've worshipped the right way. Did I do enough good things to outweigh my bad things? Did I, did I work the, the, the system the right way? Did I follow God the way that he wants me to follow, check all the, the, the check boxes? Did I do it all right or did I do it all wrong? I'm, not, I'm no longer forced to wonder this. Am I in the right spot? Am I living the right way? Because in Jesus, I'm free to give it all up and rest in his deliverance because he did the work. It is always him doing the work. But friends, it's so tempting to get caught up in rejoicing in the works of our hands, isn't it? It's so tempting to say, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look how great, of course, God would want me on his team. And Stephen calls us out just like he calls out the Pharisees and the scribes. In verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ouch. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. As it was from the beginning, as it was in the time of Stephen, fast forward thousands of years as it is in our day today. Man, we can be stiff-necked. We can be uncircumcised in heart. And we always resist the Holy Spirit. He says, you had it all right in front of you. You had your scriptures, you had your stories, you had the law, you practiced the traditions, you should have known. But when it came to Jesus, you could not see past your own work. You couldn't see past the rejoicing of the work in your hands and humble yourselves before the King of glory. And Stephen ends by turning the tables on his accusers. He says, you think I'm opposing the work of God? Look at the history. Look at what we are doing. Look at what the nation of Israel is. It's all about opposing the work of God. And in so doing, he draws three conclusions, three accusations against the people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He says, secondly, that, that you've become partakers in murdering and betraying Jesus himself, who would be your Messiah. 
And then thirdly, he says, you've actually not kept the law. You had the law, but you didn't keep it because you didn't see its purpose. You couldn't see what it was doing. And guys, sometimes we can be so focused on the work of our hands that we forget that our God is a God of mercy and love. That God is a God of forgiveness towards people, towards you and me. That God loves me. That God is a God who delivers. That God is a God who calls Abraham out from the other side of the river while he was serving other gods. That our God is a God who delivers Joseph while he was in Egypt and gives him favor and wisdom, yet didn't give up on his brothers, yet didn't give up on the evil patriarchs who sold him into slavery. Our God is a God who speaks to Moses while in exile in the wilderness through a burning bush and says, this place is holy ground because I am here meeting with you. So take your sandals off. Our God is a God who still delivers the people of Israel, even though they didn't understand, even though they couldn't see it. Our God is a God who would call to you and call to me now today, give up your pride, give up what you think you're doing, and in the words of Jesus, follow me. Follow me, I'll give you a new way to live. And in his mercy, though, there comes a point where his long-suffering, where his patience runs out and he turns and he gives, the, he gives us up to worship whatever other God we please. He's not going to force us. He's not going to make us. He'll turn and he'll give us up in his mercy. And God allows a response like the Pharisees in verse 54. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Okay, that's good. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Yikes. <laughs> and then in verse 57, they cry, cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord and ultimately stoned him to death. God allows a response like this. He says, the choice is yours. Will you see what I'm doing throughout history? Will you see the work that I've accomplished on the cross? Will you see my love and my forgiveness as I hung there, bleeding, whipped, scorned? Will you see the salvation that I have brought to you? Or will you stop your ears? Will you run at him <laughs> to kill him? Or will you gnash your teeth even though you're being cut to the heart? And Stephen preaches Christ and Christ crucified. Guys, as we close, there's a, there's a growing sentiment that, you know, that, that God is under attack or that the church is under attack, or that Christianity is under attack, or whatever you want to call it. And in many cases, and certainly around the world, that's very true. There is a definite attack on, on Christians, on Christianity. But regardless if that's overstated, maybe here in our context, or understated, or whatever the case is, regardless, here is Stephen, literally killed for following the humble way of Jesus. And whatever attack was brought against him, being arrested and being uh, thrown before the council and being questioned these things, whatever attack was thrown against him, he knew that he was victorious in the work of Christ on the cross. And he entered into glory. He entered into heaven as his life here on earth ended. As he was stoned for following Jesus, he entered into eternal glory, eternal life. And so we can be encouraged. And I encourage you today, <laughs> I encourage you that, that we stand in the victory of the cross. 
and we fight against spiritual enemies. This is true. There's a battle going on, but it's not against flesh and blood. And so we may feel attacked. We, we may see what's going on in the world around us, and we may not understand it. We may not get it. We may not see what God is doing, but we can preach Christ, and we can preach him crucified. We can have a hope that he is raised from the dead, and we speak these truths, and we can rest that we can let God do the work because he always does the work. This is the history of Scripture. And maybe today, I don't know, you're still holding out in pride and self-sufficiency. Maybe you're not heeding the call of Jesus to follow me, that he would say, here is my mercy, here is my forgiveness. Enter into my kingdom, be a part of the church. But maybe you're not giving it up. And it's offensive. <laughs> it's offensive because, because it would mean giving up the work of our hands. It would mean saying that I am not good enough. And that naturally is offensive to us. But God's love is greater. And so if, if that's you, and you're, you're heeding the call, you, you, you're recognizing that this isn't the way that, or, or what you're doing isn't the way that's going to work, it isn't how it's going to be, you're not sure where eternal life will lead for you, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to come to him with your whole life, to surrender the work of your hands and finally rest in Jesus who comes down to us, who is with us, who meets us where we are on the other side of the river serving other gods and find eternal life just like Stephen who could enter into glory resting on the victory of the cross.